Welcome to the Social Impact Show. I'm Danielle Lovell-Jones, and I'm exploring the multifaceted world of social impact. Interviews, tips, and more for the individual that's interested in doing good in their world. Hey, everyone. We're back with another episode of the Social Impact Show. Yay! So excited. And we have an amazing guest with us today, Tashira Halliard. Tashira, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Hi, Danielle. Hi. I'm one I get to call her friend, but for all of you, you will get to know her more because she is the deputy director of the Homeless Children's Playtime Project, and somehow she finds the time to also be the founder of Politics and Fashion. How she does all of this, I personally don't know, but we will find out more about both of these projects in our conversation today. Tashira, are you ready to share your insight with the world? I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, tell me a little bit more about what you've been up to. I mean, clearly we know that the, you've got these two major roles that you're you're maneuvering. Um, but tell me a little bit about, let's start with Homeless Children's Playtime Project. How, how are you doing that? What's your role there? Tell us a little more. Sure. Um, so, I started at Playtime almost 12 months ago exactly uh, today. I started after working in the national policy world, mostly around child welfare, um, doing some anti-racist work, um, but feeling very removed from community. And as someone who has a background as a community organizer, who grew up in a working class or low-income community, I really wanted to see the impact of my work um, on a daily basis. And so I was searching for nonprofit organizations that I could practice in. Well, I shouldn't say practice. I, I, I'm a trained attorney, but I hate litigating. That's not my life. So um, I, I, to, to find an organization that I could have a valuable contribution in um, and just touch real people. And I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be at Playtime Project because it has given me um, the chance to do just that. As deputy director, I manage our seven programs at five homeless shelters and transitional housing programs throughout Washington, D.C. And I'm proud to say that our programs are all trauma-informed, that we keep in mind the situations that our participants have faced as a result of homelessness, and we're working hard with them to help build resiliency, to build some, to peel back some of that trauma and allow them to live lives that have positive outcomes despite their housing circumstance. Yeah. You know, Tashira, the funny thing is while I was in D.C., I had come across this group through um, a client of mine, and it is really impressive the, the way that they go about helping these children um, from my understanding, the idea was that, you know, a lot of children kind of get resources, but they miss the, the components of their childhood. Um, talk to me a little bit about the, the specific mission of, of Playtime for the people that might not know about it. Yeah, so we believe that families deserve housing and children deserve play, that play is a human right. Um, and that children should experience that component of their childhood no matter where they live, whether it is a housing complex, a refugee camp, a mansion, or the White House, that all children deserve that fundamental right. So for us, we set up play programs at shelters and transitional housing programs where a group of volunteers come in a few times a week, and they essentially play with the kids. 
sometimes we feel kind of burdened to make it more complicated than what it is. But no, they play with the kids. Play is valuable just as it is. Um, because as you mentioned, that aspect of childhood can be ripped away from children once they are the ones they're forced to leave their homes, whether it be by eviction, um, as a result of domestic violence, medical emergencies that their families may be experiencing. In D.C. right now, we have an affordable housing crisis. There is literally no inexpensive housing left in the city, Um, literally. And, And that is by research done by the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. And so a lot of people are finding themselves in this situation. In fact, families are the majority of homeless individuals in the city. And so for a child, six, seven, eight, nine years old, you're literally forced to leave everything that you've known behind. So just the instability and how destabilizing that can be for a young person, we really try to normalize as much as possible their childhood and their experiences while living in shelters. What's been some of the feedback about this? I mean, you know, we're all be interested about the high-level people, what they think, but what do you, what have, what's been the feedback from the, the kids? How, what have you seen change in them? Oh, wow. I'll tell you, so my first week at Playtime, I was visiting our largest site, which is um, D.C. General, homeless shelter in D.C., and I'll say for your listeners, it is a former hospital that was pretty much abandoned by the city and reopened some years ago to house homeless families or families experiencing homelessness. And I arrived at D.C. General, and there was this cute little boy. He was wearing, like, Spider-Man pajamas, and he was literally running down the hallway screaming, It's playtime! He was so excited to go to playtime then. Um, because, and I, I, I don't imagine that D.C. General is unlike very many shelters throughout this country where families are kind of cramped in these small rooms. The kids don't have a lot of toys, and so... Our playroom, in a lot of ways, is it's like an oasis, and the kids tend to really come alive in that space that's dedicated just for them, especially to have the individual attention of a volunteer. We try very hard to keep our ratios two to one, two kids to one volunteer, allowing those kids who may not always re- may not always receive it to have as much individual attention as possible. Um, And I've just seen children make tremendous strides through our program, primarily because we take great interest in working directly with parents. Um, No matter how effective we are, I strongly believe that we have to also work with parents. They are children's first teachers, and their role in children's lives cannot be overlooked. Um, So working with them, we're able to deploy resources, we're able to do developmental assessments, um, we're able to provide connections to to help with school registration and health resources, all these things that oftentimes when living in a shelter environment, if you do have a quality case manager, he or she is most focused on getting you into housing, not necessarily the needs of children, Mm. and that's what we're there for, to focus on the needs of the children. Help help the help me and other people that might kind of take for granted the definition of homelessness. How does your organization define homelessness? Is it they're actually out on the streets of Baltimore? I mean, I'm sorry, not Baltimore, DC. Um, or is there another definition that that's more broad that we need to understand? That's a good question um, because actually the federal definition and the definition that we believe as an organization and 
many nonprofits subscribe to is a bit different. So we believe that any family who does not possess a home of its own is homeless. So that can include being doubled up with a relative. It could include couch surfing. It could include um, staying weekly at a motel. If you do not have the means to sign a lease or to purchase a home of your own um, and you are living under the roof of another, for our purposes, you are homeless. And D.C. also subscribes to that definition as far as family homelessness is concerned, because if a family shows up to the steps of the intake center and says, we have no other safe place to go, then by law, especially if it's in hypothermia season, or specifically, I should say, if it's in hypothermia season, the city has an obligation to place you in shelter. Non-hypothermia season, the city has no legal obligations, but we're hopefully working towards a system where any family that has no safe place to go will get into shelter, not just during the winter months. Another thing that I think would be interesting to get your insight on is you're dealing with a lot of, when, again, when people's presumptions of homelessness. First, you give a, a great definition that I think many people might not know. But then when you have an organization like this, you being deputy director, you're in, you're deeply ingrained in the on-the-ground kind of work with the children, but also on the more... Um, managerial level, what kind of things does an organization at this level need from others? So when you're thinking about donors, if you're thinking about people that have time to give, or if you're just thinking about people that you just want to raise awareness of, like what kind of things do you all need at this point, if anything? Good question. So I'm proud to say that we don't take one dime from the city. We take no government funding. Um, and that's a very principled decision on our behalf. It has been since Playtime's inception because we want to be able to advocate with clean hands. We want to be able to hold the city accountable and not feel constrained by taking public dollars. Um, so what that means is that we rely heavily on our private donors and small foundations. They are, are our donors and foundations are the ones who have kept our organization afloat and the ones who have allowed our organization to grow. We started as all volunteer based. Even our co-founder, who is now our executive director, was a volunteer. Mm. And since we have gotten staff, we have truly just blossomed. We've seen the sophistication of the work that we do just truly deepen. And as I mentioned, that's because of the financial support that we've received. But also in-kind donations have been tremendously helpful. I can't tell you, Danielle, what it means for someone to call us up and say, hey, you know, I have a, a box full of books that my son no longer needs? Do you have need, a need for any of these things at your site? Um, my child's school did a glove and hat donation drive for you all, for all the families living at D.C. General or other shelters throughout the city. Can we drop these off to you? So I, in very many ways, the cause of children who are experiencing homelessness has been very endearing to people's hearts. And uh, I think that it has shown me the best of people regarding what it is we're willing to give and the ways that we're willing to support positive and impactful work. When you, when you talk about impactful work, and, and you, you and I have had lots of conversations throughout law school about like injustice and fighting the good fight and being proactive, and I'm just, I'm just curious, like, how are you all maintaining that when you do have to spend so much time um, looking for donors or getting that support? How do you 
I guess more personally, less organizationally, how do you continue to sustain that energy to keep fighting the good fight? Because I think it can it can be exhausting sometimes. Yeah, I just I don't have a choice. Sometimes I want to give up and I just can't. <laughs> you know, it's just, it it drives me sometimes against my own interests. I think because I have such a personal relationship because of my own background with what our kids are facing. So I'll share a little bit about my story. My mom was 16 when she was pregnant with me, had me at 17, um, had the stick to itness to finish high school, to go on to college. But a lot of my parenting came from the support of my grandparents. And my grandparents are still married to this day. Thanks be God. Yay. Um, 50 years. My grandfather was a very hardworking man. My thoughts fate for the majority of his life. And my grandmother was a domestic worker. Um, and what I know to be true, despite the fact that my father was not around for the majority of my life, he battled a serious drug addiction that he's since overcome, um, is that it was my grandparents who were one of the strongest protective factors in my life. And I know that but for them, so but for God, there go I, that I could have been caught in a serious cycle yes. that would have landed me in poverty and disenfranchisement had it not been for the stability that they were able to provide. And now juxtapose that with what I see with homeless families in the city, I see very often grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, children, those children having children, entire generations all living together in a shelter. Hmm. Because they don't have that strong network, that social capital that was provided to me. And I was just born into that, right? I didn't do anything to, like, gain that privilege. Right. My, my grandparents were very young when I was born, but thank God that they had, but they instilled education and, and hard work and all these principles in me, despite them not even having a high school education. Yeah. What about those families who don't have a Mayberg and a Carlton Smart in their lives? I can see very clearly the structural inequities that play out in people's lives every day, and I think that it is my obligation to fight. I don't have a choice. Well, I pause only because it's people like you that keep me energized, so I appreciate that. Um, but but thinking about, in, in another frame, you attack structural inequities in a different way. With, with And I might be putting words into this, but this is how I view your work with politics and fashion, because like, it might be a stretch here, but like the, the issues we see in the educational system and the issues we see with um, different communities suffering with poverty based on, on a range of issues, a lot of that, and when you talk about race and you talk about all of these um, topics that it's hard to discuss because it's so much ingrained structural, it's just so ingrained structurally, that's what I'll say, that it's you kind of switch and it's sometimes seen as lighter, but there are also these um, structures in place that challenge the way women view themselves. Mm -hmm. And that was why I was like, I need, we need to talk about both of the things you're doing because you're, you're battling very hard topics on two different fronts in two different ways. So if you can just take some time to talk about what you're doing with politics and fashion. Sure. Um, Politics and fashion started for me just as this idea. So 
um, my, my whole life I can remember just being very intrigued by fashion. I, I had a favorite outfit when I was five years old. It was this yellow two-piece that I was so pressed to wear to kindergarten. Everything probably fell apart. I'm sure my grandma washed it until it was just bare threads. Um, I was very particular about how I wanted to wear my hair, what shoes I wore. I just always saw fashion as art. Puffy Brewster was my hero. <laughs> so, um, and as I as I got older, I thought, wow, it would be so cool if I could do something that involved fashion. But my entire family, especially my grandparents, cautioned me against it. The fact that they wouldn't have any part of it because for them, I was supposed to go to school, become a lawyer, get a good job, follow this script, um, because they had invested so many resources in me. Mm -hmm. And today I'm so thankful because I don't think that I had the wherewithal to really understand what it would have been like to break into the fashion industry at 18, 19 years old. But what I've been blessed and fortunate enough to do is to take that passion and just channel it in a different way. And so politics and fashion started first as the idea of maybe like some kind of sustainable clothing line. These were two things about my life that I was very interested in. How can I bring them together? This idea about, I mean, politics in in a way to mean social justice and fashion, this art form that I've always been so intrigued by and very close to. And I was like, well, I can't really sketch. I can't sew beyond the button, so that doesn't sound like the best use of my resources. But I began to get more and more intrigued by online platforms. Hmm. People who I saw doing this amazing work in photography and daily wear out outfit posts and taking pictures of street style. And that's when I got the idea of, oh, let me start a blog. Let me give this a try. And I remember I didn't tell anybody for probably about a month that I was blogging with. And I told one person, another person, and it's just really gotten to the point, Daniel, honestly, where I'm comfortable and confident enough to share my writing and my thinking about fashion and beauty and all these ideas that affect women of color um, on broader platforms than I have before. Well, on so many levels, I'm glad that you did because the, I, I mean, I, I don't want to generalize women, all, uh, you know, because I think it's everyone has a room for fashion and they express themselves in different ways. But I think that is what I enjoy most about your blog is that it is a self-expression and, and you're doing it your way um, and indirectly encouraging others to do it their way as well. That That is something that I think is very important and necessary. I, I'm not sure if you saw there was recently this whole sketch on um, the, the dad bod. And oh yeah, <laughs> and there was all this dialogue about like it was the Daily Show, and they were talking about like how hard it was to be a man and have his body just kind of you know, and it, and it was so good that they could glorify men to be the persons they were. Mm-hmm. But you flip to the mom bod, and everyone's got a six pack six weeks after their baby, or right. you know, there, there's no way that that's there's no, no room for it. And I think it's just so important for more messaging to be out there about really celebrating yourself the way you are and expressing it and expressing yourself the way you feel comfortable. Yeah. I I have always been a fan of challenging the norm. 
Um, I'm from a very small rural place in the South. And if I followed the script that had been given to me, I would still be there. And I would not have seen as much of the world as I have. I would not have, I would not understand or have the level of awareness that I do. And so I try to bring that sensibility to my blog that whatever it is that I've been given, I want to question, I want to interrogate, I want to analyze, I want to indict, and I want to convict if necessary. So, so standards of beauty are that thing, I think, that, that has gotten me going probably the most on politics and fashion. Yeah, I was just, exactly what I was going to ask you. Like, what has been the, what's been the hardest thing to talk about on politics and fashion? Um, I think the hardest thing for me, because I can sense my conditioning and I have to work through my, like, my conditioning has been conditioned, right? I have to work through the ways that I know I have been brainwashed to think about negative messaging around myself would be issues around sexism and slut shaming. Hmm. Um, Tell me more about that. So I I, I wrote about this just a a little bit recently about my experience. Um, Well, actually two posts come to mind. So one is when uh, this guy sat down beside me on the train, on the metro uh, public transportation here in D.C., and he started watching porn. Um, And I I got on the train, made eye contact with him, said hello to him, sat down, was minding my business, and then he sat down right beside me, pulled out his smartphone, started watching porn, and then leaned in towards me. Mm. And in that moment, I felt like, my first thought was, what did I do? Why am I wearing these shorts? Why did I smile at him? I don't know him. Why did I curse him out? Why did I punch him in his face? It, it was immediately for me to think what I had done to invite this form of violence into my life. And I wrote about that. And I had to be transparent with myself. And I felt like I, it was due to others as well to say, although that was my first thought, I know that that that's an incorrect thought, right? I can intellectual, I can talk about all this like different forms of feminism and quote bell hooks and talk about Audre Lorde and give you the whole spiel. But when the rubber meets the road and I am in a situation that is violent and misogynistic and hurtful, my first thought is still as a black woman to think about what I have done wrong. When so clearly I'm the one who has been victimized. Hmm. And the same is true for a recent post that I wrote about going to the eye doctor recently. And similarly, having just pleasant conversation with this guy. This guy reminded me of my younger brother. Um, nice kid, nice enough. We talked about our weekend, what we plan to do for the Memorial Day holiday. And uh, I get home and I find out, although I had not given him my, my name, um, nor have I invited this, he looked me up on Facebook and sent me a a friend request. And I felt like that was boundary crossing because, one, I met this man in a professional environment in a medical setting nonetheless. And for him to look at my paperwork and feel empowered enough. Oh, this was an employee. This was an employee at at the optometrist. Hmm. Um, But again, Danielle, my first thought was, Maybe I was too friendly to him. Hmm. 
you know, wh- why, why did I smile at him? I should maybe I led him on. Now I'm thankful that I have challenged enough scripts in my life, and I think this is why blogging is so therapeutic for me. I've challenged enough scripts that those thoughts are fleeting and they don't linger in the way that they did. And I have the self-awareness to get to the root of where it's coming from. But I think about all those women who lack that awareness. I think about me at 19 or 20. Right. You know, it, it takes constant, constant work. And I think when I share experiences like that, it's when I'm at my most vulnerable. Now, well, I, one, I appreciate that you share those experiences because in my mind, I often have those moments where you're thinking, I'm smarter, I'm smart enough, I'm capable enough, I've done all these things to make me not feel this insecure way or feel as though I was at fault for something that I inherently know wasn't. Mm-hmm. And again, this is why I wanted us to talk about both of these things, because these are transferable. I think they happen to a lot of people in different settings where they question themselves simply because they've been trained to. Yeah. As compared to them thinking for themselves and really thinking about these as isolated incidences. Curious then, with this kind of, when you talk about challenging theories, I think in this nonprofit realm, social justice realm, it's easy to kind of throw words around and impact is one of them. And that's why I want to talk to people who are doing things. You are sending positive messages out every day to Shire, to to anyone that's reading your blog, they can see that it's positive from the fact that they get great fashion tips, but then also (laughs) they get these really honest and vulnerable posts about being a woman of color and being subjugated to certain things. What can be done for, I mean, and this is going to be one of those two general questions, but I have to ask because I'm still thinking about the next generation of young girls that might not have even been born yet. How do we get them to not immediately go to a place of what did I do wrong? Is it even, is it even possible for our next generation? Are we still at the point where we need to just combat it as it comes up? I think we have to, um, as much as we, and and I I hate this phrase, so you have to forgive me for using it, but as much as we need to teach our daughters to to lean in, I'm reminded of little Riley Curry. I don't know how that news you've been invested in. How can you miss Riley? Uh, listen, I am a fan. I am on Riley Curry's team. She's the real MVP. Yes. <laughs> I low-key stand for Riley. So um, as much as I'm reminded of, of how much we need to give our daughters that space to just be, right, and to, to, to train them up in a way that people of privilege have always trained their children, Um I also think that we have to pay as much attention to how we raise our boys and the messages that they are receiving. Um, Because in very many ways, I was reading uh, Chimamanda Adichie's um, We Should All Be Feminists, her tech talk, they made it into a little small bound book. And she, Chimamanda talks about um, how we just, 
raise our children in these very different ways, right? So, so there was a time, anthropologically, I'm sure, where the human being who had the greater physical strength that may have conferred a certain dominance because of being able to protect and hunt, etc. But sometimes there's nothing about a man's physical strength that should warrant any superiority whatsoever. But still, we still subscribe to gender roles that are based upon this early human experience. It's like, people, what are we doing? We, as, as an evolved species, why are we still conferring power based simply upon biology, right? There's so many other ways that human beings are valuable. Your creativity, your knowledge, your wit, your social agility. There are so many things that are more important than sex and gender will ever be. And we need to teach all the positive experiences that can exist outside of those two realms to our children and just as responsible for those conversations with our girls as we are with our boys. Yeah, and, and on the same note, we end up doing boys a disadvantage by not teaching them the emotional and other traits that girls are kind of heightened with. So it's almost like giving both the opportunity to truly be themselves in the truest form. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see that so often, black males especially, in, in D.C., uh, D.C. is about equally divided as far as the population is concerned, black versus white, but black families are the vast majority of those experiencing homelessness in the city. And so a lot of the children who we serve, obviously, are African-American. And I see it frequently, boys being, a, don't cry. Why are you crying like a girl? Mm-hmm. And this isn't from their parents. These from people who feel empowered enough who just happen to be walking by the security guards, whomever at the shelter who carries this trope as so many in our community do of a certain way that boys versus girls are supposed to behave. And so then this type of hyper-masculinity is bred and everyone suffers in our community as a result of it. To teach someone to be completely divorced from his emotions and to have low level of emotional intelligence. When you talk about how we suffer PTSD in our communities as a result of the violence that occurs um, because of police brutality, because of mass incarceration, suicide, depression, mental illness, all these things that are part of our experience that when we teach our boys to not display their emotions, we can never get to the bottom of, right? Mental illness is not a girl's issue. Depression is not a girl's issue. Being emotionally aware is not, it should not have a gendered connotation, yet it does. You know, Tashari, you talked about the feeling empowered, and you've used that word a couple of times in a way that I I like, but but it's not the way I was expecting it. Usually I think of empowered as being a positive thing, You've kind of taken it and and flipped it on its head a little bit because I think when you're talking about adults and you're talking about certain genders, certain races, it's easy for the more powerful to feel empowered when it's not really their place. Um, So I'm curious how, what, what you've thought of when you see these adults talking to these young boys and feeling empowered, feeling they have a place to tell them to behave a certain way. How do we check ourselves that we're not behaving in an empowered fashion, in an inappropriate fashion? Mm. 
That's a good question. I, I think about this a lot. Um, think about, I don't have children, but I actually was thinking today about what kind of parent I would hope to be. And I think um, for me, that actually extends beyond being a, a biological parent or being an adoptive parent and extends to any child that I'm fortunate to come across. And it, the onus is on us to check our adultism. We have so much more to learn from children than probably what they have to learn from us, honestly. Um, just that purity, that innocence. You know, children are, are taught to hate. It's not something that's inherent in the human condition. You know, we we teach our children these negative tropes, and then when they recur regurgitate them, we seem to be surprised for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think one of the things we can do is to ask ourselves, does this behavior harm the child or does this behavior harm others? Hmm. And if the answer to those things is no, then the discomfort that we might be experiencing is that the child is making us question some narrative that we have of the world. So, for example, we have, um, we've had several children in our programs, um, boys, who enjoy putting on the princess costumes. And this is something that for a variety of reasons around gender, and, you know, Caitlyn Jenner, right. um, all over the news. And so for a variety of reasons around gender and how we see trans people, or I can't even say trans individuals, because what does a child really know about gender? What the right. little have known is, I like that costume. It's pretty. I want to put it on. But we then impute this meaning upon it that's meant to mean something so much deeper. And I think at the root of it is not that a boy should not wear a dress because obviously if a child gravitates towards a piece of clothing, that's a very natural affinity. That's a natural experience. What it is is that it makes the adult uncomfortable because of what he or she has learned and subscribed to about the world. So, therefore, that adult has to then shut the behavior down, although the child is not doing anything to harm himself or anyone else. Yeah, it's to make them feel better. Yeah. Huh. You are, you are speaking some truth today, Shaya. <laughs> um, let me then kind of, the, the one thing I think we might have touched on a little bit at the beginning, but I want to make sure we have a clear moment for this, is the balance that you have to have to juggle all of this work. I think anyone in the in the social justice, social impact realm, you tend to carry a lot on your back and you sometimes carry a lot of the issues that aren't necessarily your own. Um, but you, like you said, you have that weight and that need to, to fix and make things better. But more tangibly for you, you are, you know, deputy director of a, of a great organization and you're founder of this blog. How are you finding time to manage those I think on a very like tangible level how are you doing that um so my blog in many ways is a practice of self-care mm. and the moments when I start to see it as something other than that I think is when I do my blog and myself a tremendous disservice um it is the way that I connect with myself it, it's a public diary right it's it, it's how I kind of curate all the things that I think are pretty and amazing about the world, good music, and just my thoughts on life. So that actually is a form of release in very many ways. 
Um, as far as work is concerned, I'm, I'm still struggling with what self-care and a positive work-life balance looks like. Um, it can be difficult at times when you work in a field, number one, that involves humans and people's everyday lives, to say, this is where work begins, this is where work stops. Um, but I am blessed to have an amazing partner who gives me something that makes me excited to, to come home about every single night. Um, and I know that the moments we share that we have together are just as important as that time that I put in between 9 and 5 or 9 to 6 or 9 to 9. The 9 to 9. Play- I figure there's more 9 to 9s than 9 to 5s. <laughs> yeah, at, at playtime, I think, you know, a few years ago, my career would have been the most important thing to me. I, I was just having this conversation with a friend last night who was saying that her career is, is what drives her. And it made me a little sad, Danielle, because that's just not my narrative any longer. Right. Um, you know, I, I what drives me is like my younger siblings and seeing them thrive, having funny conversations with my 13-year-old sister and right. thinking about how we're going to get her her first car and how excited she's going to be and talking to her about growing up and what adolescence is like. I'm excited to, you know, it's bathing suit season. I, I want <laughs> to look good in my swimsuit. Like, <laughs> I'm excited to think about spending forever with my partner. Those things are, are just as significant to me as my quote-unquote work, right? The work is where I go to live out my passion. My passion could be the same no matter what bricks and, and mortar structure I went into. Right. So that, that thought process kind of grounds me and allows me to, to divorce myself a bit, but it's still a work in progress. And I, I, honestly, that you so, so well articulated because I think it is a struggle to... Well, I think the first thing is that people often assume that working hard is is somehow uh, an accolade in itself. And kind of, you know, talking about breaking down narratives, that's another one that that needs to be rethought because the work you do should always have you energized or you should be energized by something that can keep you going and keep you motivated to do the hard work. Um, So I'm I'm excited that you shared that with us because I think a lot of people that are listening will benefit from that and, and benefit from taking the time to really do the self-care that you, you articulated earlier. Um, I just want to thank you, Shara, for taking the time to, to be on the show. One, because you're doing such amazing work and such necessary work, but also you're being so brave. And, and when you talk about having a public diary, um, we are going to share your blog in the notes. <laughs> and, and we'll be talking about um, the Playtime Project as well. But you just have to thank people like you too for, for sharing your story because not everyone's always going to agree with, with it, but the fact that you're living your true self and helping others is something that's amazingly wonderful and truly appreciated, at least for me. So thank you for what you're doing and thank you for the time on the show today. Excellent. Thank you so much for having such an amazing platform and I can't wait to hear more and hear about all the great work that you are doing. All right. Well, Tashara, we appreciate you. Thank you so much. And we will have more awesome topics and awesome people like Tashara on the show. Keep listening, everyone. You can follow us at Level Strat on Twitter, and we will have Tashara's blog information and more information about the Homeless Children's Playtime Project in the notes with this show. So thanks so much for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. If you like what you hear... 
give us a like on Facebook at Level Strategies or follow us on Twitter at Level Strat. We'd love to get your comments about what other topics we should explore or do you know someone that's really interesting that you'd want us to interview? Feel free to email us at levelstrategies at gmail.com.